So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, May the 21st. This is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers episode number 205. That's right, 205 weekends of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Topics. I'm Frederick Dunn. This is the way to be. So of course, back out here, nice and warm today. How warm is it? 76 degrees Fahrenheit and Celsius, 24. And we're in the Way to Be Academy building. That's right, made some changes. And uh, although I'm closer to this, so that you can watch the bees working the whole time. Observation hive. Here's my concern, by the way, um, is that uh, there's gonna be some swarming happening really soon because dandelions are starting to bloom in numbers. That's always our key here. And remember, it's May the 21st. Oh, tomorrow is Earth Day. So that's cool. Take care of the earth all the time though. Don't wait until Saturday to do it for one day, but a lot of cleanup happens and stuff like that. So that's fantastic. I have notes to get started with here. Uh, we don't have to talk about the wind. It's basically not happening. All the bees are doing what they can, getting what they can while they can. Oh, what's the pollen load right now? And why does it matter? I'm gonna put up a little graphic right now. Look at the pollen count. It's way high. What does that mean to you and me? That's an allergy website, by the way, but it's helpful to us as beekeepers because we like to know when the pollen is high, it benefits our bees. The other thing is, what's the flip side of that? If you have a pollen app and it shows you that the pollen is really low, scarce, or non-existent, that's a time where you might consider putting out a pollen supplement, I don't know. But uh, those gauges are more than just information, but it is fun to see uh, people that are going to be not feeling so good because of the amount of pollen in the air, but that also tells us that your bees are going to be doing really well. So what's bad for allergy sufferers isn't necessarily bad for beekeepers. I don't have allergies, so I don't know what that's like. But uh, Earth Day, what's blooming right now? Ooh, what about that opening sequence? Those are dead nettles. Dead nettles, here's why it's interesting to know what's going on in your environment, because you know what? I thought those were invasive plants for the longest time. I was blaming my wife for bringing them out here from, you know, the suburbia somewhere. And now I find out not only are they beneficial to the bees, bees go on them and uh, they're edible. So I'm going to provide a link down in the video description so you can learn more about dead nettles. Let those things spread out. Because I have a mindset now, my long-term goal, if it's possible, would be a no mow lawn. If I had things like, look at dead nettles, they don't grow very tall. If those things took over entire sections of your yard, they're gonna bloom all summer long and they're gonna conserve water resources. You don't have to take care of them and uh, you won't be putting down any chemicals on your lawn, right? To kill weeds, the terrible weeds like dandelions. That's what they tell you. You gotta get rid of them. Why not let them grow? Dandelions grow really tall though. Dead nettles stay low. Think about a no-mo lawn. So what else? Oh yeah, let's take a look at these guys. This whole bottom frame and right up into here. So the bottom two medium frames here, all drones. What else do you notice about that? They're capped. What's that mean? That means that by the end of next week, there's gonna be thousands of drones in that hive. This is an indicator for the rest of the apiary. So for those of you like me who are planning to do that thing that Zachary shared with us, which is that 
Road Destructor Mites gravitate towards freshly emerged drones. How old? Two to three days. So when these drones emerge, uh, before they scoot out of this hive, you might want to consider, if you've got one, a queen cage. Put a queen cage around the frame without the queen trapped in there. They're already capped. They don't need the queen. Eggs are laid. They're already in the pupa state. Queen's out of there. She's up here somewhere creating way too much brood, by the way. More bees than I ever wanted. There's three observation hives in this building and they're all loaded. So listen to the tone. I actually don't want a gajillion bees, but uh, the chances of them swarming now with what's going on in the environment, the production of drones, and uh, plenty of pollen, plenty of nectar coming in, no reason to feed anything, uh, you're going to have swarms coming out. So I hope that you're prepared for that. This is a little bit of fluff, you know, before we get started with the questions today. Buckle up because this is a long one. A lot of questions were submitted and I even uh, had to thin them out. Some of the ones that I felt either wouldn't be interesting to a lot of people or that maybe we've covered it so often. How do you know if I've covered a topic before? Go to my YouTube channel, Frederick Dunn, and in the right-hand corner of the home page of the YouTube channel, you'll see a little hourglass with a little space next to it. Not an hourglass, a magnifying glass, like you're searching for something. Type in your topic, walk-away splits, introducing queens, installing packages, things like that. Queens laying eggs, whatever you want. Type it in there, and then guess what shows up? The, the videos on my channel that uh, cover the topic. So... It's easy to search, easy to do, and uh, if you don't find it, let me know because there may be something wrong with the way I titled it or the content of the video description which helps you find these videos. So the problem is, and the good news is, there's over 900 videos to go through. We've been at this a while. Okay, so another thing I want to hit on, this is important. It's important any time of year, but a lot of people have remote bee yards. What the heck does that mean? It means it's not a place under your immediate observation. It's not right next to you. All of my beehives are not remote because they're right here on my property. In fact, they're within 100 feet, all of them, of uh, my house. So I can see them. I know what's going on. I have cameras out there. Why would I bring that up? Because there are beehive rustlers out there. Beehive thieves. That's right, dishonest people that come around and steal beehives from hard-working beekeepers. So I want to go down a list of things because people are surprised often to find out that some people are not so good, that they're in fact dishonest, that they're criminal. In fact, some beehives are so expensive that it reaches the level of felony theft. That's right. These people are not nice. The reason I bring it up is because a very close friend of ours had uh, bees in a remote location that she thought was protected, that nobody would see the beehives there, and lo and behold, she goes out to install bees. Worst case scenario, the hives are gone, all of them. Good news, long story short, she got all her hives back. I don't believe a word that the person said that gave her back her hives. After, of course, she called them out on social media. Social media is your friend. If you're losing something, if somebody stole beehives, that's hard to hide. And I would recommend that you go to social media, tell everybody about it. Because there's no reason that somebody that steals hives should be able to hide. Okay, so these are things to do to help your hives be uh, less appealing to thieves, maybe. Distinctive colors, your own colors, your unique colors. 
Here's the thing, have you ever priced um, outdoor paint, latex, exterior semi-gloss, or even gloss paint? You know how expensive that stuff is? Let me tell you how to get it dirt cheap. I don't care if you go to the Sherwin-Williams store, or you go to Lowe's, or Home Depot, or Get Her Done, or whatever the name of the building center is. If they're mixing paint there, guess what they deal with? They deal with unhappy customers. Shocking, but true. What do the unhappy customers do? They get home, they find out, the tint that they did doesn't match, doesn't look right, they don't like it, they bring it back and they want their money back. Where does that five gallon or gallon pail of paint go? Underneath the counter, on the shelf, it's a return, it's no good. They can't sell it to the regular consumer. That's why you see a bunch of tint base all over the place and then they custom tint it for you. This is what you do. You go in there, you make friends with the person that mixes the paint and that shakes it. Yeah, say, did anybody turn in some paint recently? In fact, here's my number. If anybody does turn in some paint that they're not happy with and it's exterior semi-gloss paint, guess what? A 40 or $50 gallon of paint just became available to you for five bucks. In fact, some managers go to those paint departments and they say, listen, get rid of these paints this week. Because it's hazardous material, they don't want to have to dump it, they can't. So they have problems getting rid of it. That's my tip for you. Go to your building center or your paint center and ask them for returned paints. Get them at a bargain if you don't care about the color. And guess what? You end up with a custom color. Or get a five gallon pail, mix them all together, water soluble, latex, and you end up with these muddy colors, which by the way, aren't terrible because they kind of blend with the countryside. I highly recommend that you learn to paint things that look like ferns and grass and mossy oak and all the other stuff that's out there. For me, I don't want my hives to be conspicuous from the road. So there's another thing, tracking devices. Some people actually stick a tracking device in their most expensive beehives, but guess what? Criminals are onto them because I did some looking and the hives that get left behind, the ones with the tracking devices in them. So these might work. The good news is a lot of thieves are stupid. That's the benefit to the smart beekeeper. They don't think ahead. That's why you catch them with trail cameras. Trail cameras pointing in multiple directions. See the vehicle coming, see the vehicle leaving. Maybe it's a stolen vehicle, but there are unique trucks, you know, they got special dents and scrapes and stuff because the people that are doing the theft generally aren't the wealthiest people around. They tend to drive beaters. Now I'm not casting or painting this with a broad brush. I'm just saying that these are not the nicest people. If they were successful, they wouldn't be stealing your beehives. The other thing is how accessible are your beehives? Are they right next to a road where somebody can pull right up in the middle of the night, I don't know, 2 a.m.? and just load up all your hives and drive away. So think about putting up a barrier or multiple barriers. So ways to keep it less uh, conspicuous. Don't make it easy for them to drive up and get them because I'm sure they don't wanna hike down a hillside and pick up each hive one by one and tote it up the hillside. So think about that because a lot of people are new beekeepers right now and they've they, can, they live in the city or they live in suburbia and they say, hey, I have a friend that has an apple orchard and, and they said I could keep my bees out there. Well, consider where you place them. Drive around and see how visible that would be. Find out who has access to the land and see how vulnerable you are to theft. California, no secret, uh, the almond pollination services, they have cattle rustlers, here he cattle rustlers, <laughs> livestock rustlers because honeybees are livestock they don't fool around. The thieves have great big flatbed trucks and they come in with a crew and you know what? They look like they belong there. They look like uh, they should be moving hives.
So let's move on. Brands that emboss. There are these really hot irons that you can get, you know, the last four numbers of your telephone number or something and emboss the woodenware of your hives. That includes the boxes. Make sure that it's conspicuous because if you just stencil, a lot of people just stencil the name on them and stuff like that. I would burn mine. I laser cut mine. Um, uh, then when somebody paints over it, if it's just stenciled, then immediately it, it looks uh, like any other hive. And the thieves are sharp. They're like chop shops, you know? They paint everything new right away. And uh, so make sure it's embossed and difficult. Try to do unique things to your hives that make them stand out as yours. You're a backyard beekeeper. You're probably not a big target for theft, but if your hives are expensive... Years ago, when I started getting the flow hives around 2016, I was putting them out. Somebody goes, thanks for telling us where you live. Those things are expensive. Now, people that think like that, you know what I mean? They deserve to be caught. And uh, brands and a boss. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, here's the other thing. When you see somebody that doesn't belong messing with beehives, question them. Always ask questions. What are you doing? What's going on? Where'd you get those hives? Somebody just comes into a bunch of beehives out of the blue, and guess what? They're already loaded with bees. Hey, hey, how did you uh, end up with those hives? Who gave them? Oh, a friend gave them to me. I did some side work for them, and they handed me some hives. Cool. Who's your friend? Do the follow-up. Go to the next level. Check it out with the friend. Hey, did you give beehives to Sassy Pants Malone over there who says that all his new bees and hives were just handed to him because he mowed your yard? Is the stories don't make sense? Contact the authorities. Now, here's the part that a lot of people don't like. I'm in the state of Pennsylvania. You're supposed to register your beehives, and I get pushback every time I say that. People go, I'm not registering anything. I'm not following the government. I'm not going to do anything the government says. Okay, I've heard it all. To save your save your text time. Don't, don't even write that to me. Uh, because I'm on board with registering my hive with the Department of Agriculture because it falls under the Department of Agriculture. And guess what else happens when you do that? If you lose your hives, let's say a bear comes through. You didn't even put up a bear fence and a bear came through and destroyed a whole bunch of your hives. Let's say somebody comes through and steals all your stuff. Let's say a truck gets out of control and barrels through all your bees and smashes up your equipment. You're not registered, zero compensation. It's up to you to try to give enough information to law enforcement so they can track them down. Good luck with the sheriff's department. But if you're registered, with the Department of Agriculture, you get compensated the first time. I was talking to the fish and game guys, and like if you get attacked by a bear, your hives get taken apart. You didn't have an electric fence, they come out, they do an assessment. Keep all your receipts. So you know how much of a claim there's going to be, and they will pay you, and you'll be compensated. Now, that doesn't happen next week. It might be months before you get compensated, but you know what? It's better than nothing. I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to buy a whole bunch of new hive equipment just because some person of ill repute snuck out there and stole my stuff. Now, word to the wise, I've been robbed before. Yeah, I have. It's true. In fact, I just got the letter from the victim advocacy unit that says that my guys are about to get out of jail. That's right. We caught them. Why? Because they weren't terribly smart. And I have multiple cameras. To catch a thief and uh, I've never had problems again of course but mark your stuff to all the things I've said and hopefully you won't be one of the people that has been robbed here's the other thing 
like on the inner cover of your hives or on the side of your hives, write some contact information. It can be your phone number. You don't have to give your whole name and address, obviously. But uh, sometimes people will drive by. We saw this on social media. Someone was driving by and there was a field with an apiary in it and a storm had come through and a lot of the hives were on their sides. If there had been a little sign or something on the side of those hives with a phone number, uh, you could have been contacted and they would have let you know that, hey man, your hives are on their side in the snow. You can go out there and do something about it. Lots of reasons to do that. Okay, so that's my opening. Let's jump right into the questions for the day. First one comes from Terry from Tabernacle, New Jersey. Just I just purchased the license stand and noticed it looked like you used notched 4x4s. Can you elaborate on that as well as your current opinion on the stands? Okay, the license stands are those heavy-duty metal stands that I have all over my bee yard now. I like them because they're adjustable and they're built so that they're going to last forever, basically. And forever, you know, that's relative, right? Because for me, forever might not be that long because I'm not, you know, 29. But they're, they're made out of heavy stock, they're chromium, and adjustable. So, plus they handle a really heavy load. That's why I like them. Uh, the other thing is you can run two by fours. They're open for two by fours. In fact, I've been called out on that before because I had a bunch of four by fours laying around. So what did I do? I cut the four by fours to length and I cut them five inches longer. At the end, I notched them out. So that means I cut a little rabbit out of that. And uh, that way the two by four portion of it slid in there. And somebody else said, what a waste of material. It's only as strong as its weakest point, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to get into a big engineering dispute, but I understand the principles of engineering. The 4x4 is stiffer throughout its run, the span, if you will. So even if you have the 2x4 section right where it sleeves in and goes into the stand, right? Then the rest of the 4x4 is uh, more rigid, less deflection under load. So it actually is better. For example, you could do a two by six and you could have, so now it's tall, right? But the two by six is only full thickness through the span. When you get to the end, the two by four portion, so it'd be cut out again, goes into there. Now we have a stress point, right? Where the two by four meets the two by six thickness. But once again, deflection throughout the span, profoundly reduced Therefore, load-bearing with less deflection is enhanced. That's why I did that. But I just had them around anyway. So, But they're fantastic hive stands. You want a hive stand that's going to last forever? What do they cost? Well, they cost about $109 or something like that. I think they're, uh, the prices change. I got mine from Betterbee. And, uh, in fact, I sold a couple of them from someone who needed to set up a hive stand right away. Uh, last fall and I said that's okay they just paid me what I paid for them and then I would go and get my others and when I went to order my replacements they were out of stock so while they're in stock get them if you want hive stands and all you need to do is put two by fours in and they're ready to go which also means that when you take them apart they still flat against the wall they're heavy and heavy duty so I recommend those without hesitation those are great there are other hive stands that I like too I like building your own iron T-posts, for example, with metal conduit spanning them. Uh, there are a lot of ways to make beehives, but if you're in a pinch, you need something fast, and you want to be able to move it anywhere at any time, 
Lysen, metal, hive stands. Even the pins that hold their position are on a chain. You can't lose them. So you're not going to find them with your lawnmower. Just saying. Question number two, moving on, comes from Michelle, Troy, Michigan. You used eco wood last year, but notice it did not prevent warping of some finger joints. Is there some oil or additional product that can be used on the edges that would help prevent the pulling away? I only found one YouTube follow-up video on those that have used it in cold weather winters. He said one-third of his hives warped on the finger joints. It was from Walnut Farm Bees, and it looks like he used staples. I'm making new boxes for this year. Would love your opinion. Okay, Eco Wood. Oh, I didn't even plan this, but I have one sitting right here. This uh, is a Nucleus Hive cover. So the migratory cover, it would be considered. This is what it looks like. It's been out in the weather. And this is what we're talking about too. This isn't the finger joints, but look at the edges. See how they warp? See how it cups up? It's because eco wood is a wood treatment. It's not a wood finish, and there's a difference. Treatment means it's not gonna rot. It can stay out in the weather, and uh, it's not gonna degrade the wood. Now, does that mean it's going to be stable? That's up to you to stabilize it. So. The weakest point, the weakest joint. In all of the boxes, it's very annoying. I would pick up that box, but it's full. Um, they have this little rabbit joint here on the edge, that little thin piece at the top, and it creates the frame rest for your B frames inside the box. Those top corners, and of course the bottom as well, because if you don't glue and clamp them up, I highly recommend you clamp, glue and clamp all of your boxes together. Then, particularly with those little joints at the top, run a screw through it. That will also help the clamp um, set up. And uh, the clamp will hold it in place while the screw is in there and then you've got a double bond. The ones that I've had problems with that uh, lifted like that, including that uh, migratory cover, that migratory cover is screwed down, but it's not glued and clamped. So what glue would I recommend? Thanks for asking, Type Bond 3. Type Bond 2 tacks up quicker. Type Bond 3 is considered water resistant. So I keep Type Bond 3, longer working time, by the way, so you can fiddle around with all the joints and stuff, get your screws in there. and. Uh, you know what? If somebody were looking for something else to make for beekeepers, it would be a corner reinforcement, kind of a, uh, we have these mending plates in construction. They're, they're really big and obnoxious and they're for mending, you know, butt joints and things like that. But you see them on trusses, for example. But if someone made a corner bracket plate that would just hold those corners together, top and bottom, glue them on, screw them together, uh, that would be a forever joint then. So I don't know of anything like that, but again, the only joints, as I mentioned, that have pulled away like that were the ones that were not glued throughout all the mating surfaces. So if the wood is touching, tight bond three, glue it, clamp it, put little screws just in those thin parts, and self-tapping stainless steel uh, screws are really good for that. They're gonna last you a long, long time. 
So true, eco wood, wood treatment, paint for example, is a finish. So I still say eco wood is all you need, but you're going to have to make sure that your joints are all bonded really well. Okay, question number three comes from Marion from Kirksville, Missouri. My best friend in high school went to college in Kirksville. Starting my first year as a beekeeper, got equipment. Now it, I need some bees. Question. It seems to me uh, beekeeping requires lots of extra frames and hive bodies to be able to handle what might come through splits and swarm captures then. There's the question of how many supers of what size. Could you estimate what extra standby equipment you might need for a Langstroth hive? Is it fair to say that uh, you need to have extras of frames and bodies, bottom board and top covers to handle what comes up? Then it seems that a nucleus hive is useful for many things. Either that or get used to saying goodbye to bees that you don't have equipment for i guess then there are the frames can it be expected that one needs to be ready with extra frames each season just in case yes to everything so here's the thing this is what surprises a lot of brand new beekeepers they bought a hive kit generally so you go to some one of the main websites man lake data better bee uh, Blythewood, your local bee supply, Blue Sky Bee Supply, all these other companies. They all sell woodenware, they all sell hives, and they sell starter kits. Great way to save some money. So the starter kits I notice tend to have two deeps and two mediums, a bottom board, an inner cover, an outer cover, and you're good to go. People buy that, they get started. Now that's reasonable. Two deeps, two mediums for your first year. Chances of you using up and your bees occupying all of that in your first year, pretty rare. If it did happen, you've got some fantastic bees on your hands. Plus, you're living in a great environment. So um, the other complaint that comes usually when we're in the second year of beekeeping, people are very upset to learn that they need a shed or they need a building or they need a barn. They need some place to store their surplus beekeeping gear. And that is everything that was just described here. Yes, you need extra bottom boards. When you go to do your inspections in spring, you find out something shoot a hole in your bottom board, you have to be prepared to repair it or replace it. Here's what I do. I always go out to the bee yard with all my replacement parts. I go out to the bee yard with replacement frames and things like that. If something looks really old, see, so we're coming into spring, well, we're in spring, we're about to be doing our inspections here in the state of Pennsylvania, northeastern United States, and we're gonna be pulling old dark brood frames. That's why I load up my hive butlers. That's right, hive butler totes. For those of you who get upset every time I say that, like I'm selling them, you can buy hive, hive butler totes and uh, you can get a deduction that says Fred five. So I'm just guessing that's a 5% reduction. What do I get out of that? Nothing, except the satisfaction of knowing that you have good equipment. So here's the thing. For the empty frames and things like that, I load them up in hive butler totes. So they hold 10 frames a piece, I believe, deeps or mediums, whatever you want. And I put those on the back of my golf cart because it's electric, because it's solar powered. And uh, I go out into the bee yard and when I'm doing my inspections, if there's an empty comb, especially this time of year, down in the bottom box, because they're up in the upper box and they're starting to move down, the oldest comb, I pull out and swap it out. When I pull it, I need another frame right there, ready to go because I don't want to have to come back. I don't want to have to get into the hive twice. 
So we come out there with all the stuff we think we're going to need. We also know from doing inspections when we walk around our bee yards that some of our hive bodies need repair. You can't repair them with the bees in the hive. So you bring your new spare medium super, for example, you pull out all the frames while you're doing your inspection, you transfer them frame by frame in the exact same order because they have brood in them right now, and you put those in your new medium super. That allows you to take your existing super off, put it on your cart, take it back to the shop, and you don't have to bother your bees but the one time. And now you're going to go out there and you're going to do repairs on your woodenware. Woodenware that's taken care of really well, I've got stuff from 2008 still. That's still functional, still good. On the flip side, I've got stuff that's six years old that has holes chewed in it, or the corners. When those corners pop out that we were talking about earlier, the bees will get in there and start chewing it. They're trying to fix it and they propolize it. They do everything to it. So doing it right the first time, you're way ahead. But yes, you need racks of frames. You need extra boxes. You need extra bottom boards. You need inner covers, spares. You need outer covers. So, and uh, have them on the shelf, ready to go. Because so, it's not when you find out there's something wrong, uh, when you open your hives and you need to swap things out, uh, you want to have it handy. Now, there's no set number. You can't say, I can't say, yeah, you're going to need exactly, you know, three mediums or something like that. Here's the other thing. Point of discussion for beekeepers. And beekeepers can have different methods. This doesn't have to be a big divide my friends, whether you use all mediums or a deep brood box and then mediums above that, that's a personal choice. There's no reason to create an unnecessary conflict over that. If you can't lift deep brood boxes, that's okay. But here's what I want people to know. Uh, one of the reasons that a lot of people like to keep nothing but medium boxes, for those of you who are thinking about buying your equipment right now, all mediums means that all you need to have in storage would be medium frames, medium boxes. Now the only other decision besides that is that you have eight frame size or 10 frame size. 10 frames, again, heavier, bigger. I don't mind the deep boxes. I like deep boxes and let me explain why. Uh, going into spring, which is what we're doing right now, look at the build up here. By the way, these are all medium frames, the whole thing. So if you had four medium boxes on each other, look, it would be full already. So, uh, but one thing I want you to notice, and this makes my case for me. Let's look at these. Hmm, here's brood here. So if we had all medium boxes, and these are medium boxes right here represented, then uh, this is all drone comb, but look, this is all brood too. Now, if I'm pulling boxes off, oh, look what's up here. This is brood also. And it comes right down and this is just the face frame inside the brood extends over several of them now if uh, you're pulling off mediums when you get that you know the third box up here when you're pulling that apart you just tore your brood area in half you think your bees are happy so with the deeps and the mediums that's my configuration it's a standing configuration so what i mean by that is my deep brood box is always just for the bees. Brood, honey, and whatever pollen they can store resources, right? The next box above that. So three of these boxes 
is the equivalent of two deeps. So look what look what happens. So some people that are two deeps, right? It's kind of the sweet spot. I'm actually glad that it's set up this way. We have three medium boxes, right? Those are all brewed. What happens above that? Now this is on the run. There's no queen excluder. The fourth box up, nothing but honey, no brood. So when we get to this line right here, if these are three medium boxes, you've got brood right away, brood and brood. So if you had a standing system of nothing but mediums, then mine would be the three uh, bottom medium boxes. Because I use a single deep, uh, because now we have less breaks in here, right? We only have one joint if we have a deep and a medium, um, then I know that uh, I'm not going to be splitting them apart. And here's the other thing people might say to you. If you're doing a deep and a medium, what happens when you invert your boxes in spring? Nothing. And here's why. I don't invert my boxes. So, by inverting the boxes, we mean uh, we would come into spring and they would take these top boxes and swap them with the bottom box so that it will, in theory, uh, these frames down here would be empty and then we put them above and then the brood would be down below so we we make them reuse uh, the empty comb but how much empty comb do you see I don't see any empty comb down there so I don't invert my boxes why there's only one entrance in this hive there's no top venting there's no upper entrance that keeps things in order and in spring what do they do they move right down and they start filling all this up and then they will be back filling with honey. So as time progresses, uh, you will see less brood up here and the it, this will start to fill with honey. But we've already established that this is the band. From here down is all brood, from here up is all honey without a queen excluder. So you'll find that the bees organize themselves, but the reason I bring it up is some people get very upset that they have to have both deep frames and medium frames. I don't have a problem. I have a rack for replacement deep frames and I have a rack for replacement medium frames and it goes from there. So all this brood area stays brood forever. I never rotate my boxes. The bees don't, they don't need it. Now, maybe it's something to do with where you live. Maybe your bees do require that inversion, but, uh, or maybe you've got upper venting. So if you've got, if there were a top vent, for example, on this hive right here, if up here, this were vented, the chances of them having brood up there are high. So top entrance, top venting, top brood. No top entrance, no top venting, an organized system within the hive much as the bees would do when left to themselves. Brood is all down towards the entrance, which in this case is right over there. So I hope that helps. Question number four. Charles from Los Angeles, California. How long after bees swarm can few remaining bees raise a new queen? And here's the thing about that. When the bees swarm on their own, uh, they tend to already make their replacement queens before they go. That's why there's not a lot of downtime. They have uh, queen cells that a lot of you might be discovering now when you're doing your spring inspections, these first warm weather days. And some people are already reporting that they're seeing lots of queen cells. That's good news if you want to make more hives. But uh, by the time they're swarming, they're already replacement queens. And the swarm usually happens before 
the new replacement queens emerge from their queen cells. That's good news because that prevents any conflict from the existing laying productive queen and those that are coming out to replace her. So um, the good news is that the turnover is pretty quick. Within days of uh, the queen swarming out, and right now, see, we're sitting here next to this hive. It's very comforting to know that I don't hear any queen piping. In these observation hives and in this building, whenever they're producing replacement queens, I hear queen piping. And then I know we're at the point of no return. I'm going to lose the queen. So I have to open up the hive and collect her out of there if I want to, or I can wait for her to swarm. And I'm already prepared for the swarms right now because I have my uh, QMP zip tied to a local tree, local tree, a tree in my yard, uh, blue spruce to be exact. And uh, it's the same tree branch that they all accumulated on throughout last year. So I'm establishing a pheromone base there. So they're gonna go out and uh, they're gonna hang exactly where I want them to be. And I'm gonna collect them off the tree branch after they go out. But uh, so anyway, um, they replace themselves right away. So you should be seeing eggs within the next two to three weeks after the swarm emits. Now, let's say you did something and forced a swarm or killed your queen or something like that. Now you, you're, you have a problem because hopefully there's eggs in there. If there are eggs in there, they have a chance to requeen. And when they do that though, now we're 30 days out, you're a month out. Think about where we're at. Um, so every time that you don't have a, a laying queen in your hive, I want you to think of it this way. This also is for people that put um, caged queens in when they're installing and they just let them go for a week or something. Every day the queen is not laying on those frames results in a loss of more than 1,500 bees per day on average that she would have produced. So when we're holding up our queens unnecessarily, when they could be laying in those cells, you are, just think of it, at the other end, 21 days out from the time she lays eggs, you would be losing more than a thousand bees per day. Just visualize it, and that will kind of encourage you to replace your queens as quickly as possible uh, when you have a loss. But when they're swarming naturally, the replacement queens are coming out really quick. So. In some cases, they start laying very fast and uh, they don't follow a lot of the science when we talk about how long it should take before you see a queen laying, before she matures after she emerges from her cell and then she flies out to do her mating flights and then she comes back and starts laying. How many days should that be? People like to get absolutes and mark their calendars. I have a status board over here where I mark the things I see. But uh, sometimes they do it remarkably fast and I don't have an explanation for that either. Only that. When they swarm on their own, the replacement happens much quicker, assuming that they get adequately mated. Question number five comes from Alan, Los Angeles, California. This is about the better bee um, issue that a lot of people were reporting and I asked for commentary from my viewers and it was about the better comb, the synthetic pre-drawn comb that is either deep or medium and comes provided by better bee already in the frames so that you could use them. Some people were reporting that the bees weren't using them at all, and then we discovered that comb was upside down. So that's what this is in reference to. Uh, reached out to Better Bee and was pleasantly surprised at how fast he responded to the issue I had reported. Because I asked for follow-up, I said, if you've got inverted comb, contact Better Bee. Let them know what's going on. They may not know that they've got an anarchist 
in their comb assembly section. And uh, says they apologize for the inconvenience, asked for me to send images showing the drawn out comb and uh, being installed incorrectly. And after uploading the images and showing the discrepancy, they again apologize, corrected the issue by sending a replacement. Highly impressed with the company, highly recommend them. Thanks for the highlights on this and your Q&A. So for Alan, thank you for that feedback because of course it wasn't across the board. We don't know why the person that was putting those frames together didn't understand that you know, the cell's income has to point down. So I'm glad that they reconciled that and that everything's good. And I agree, Better Be is a great company. They sell great products. They test their products before they sell them. And uh, they have a very good customer response normally. Some people reported that they got people to say, no, 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 there's nothing wrong with your comb. It's your beekeeping or something like that. But overwhelmingly and overall, people had a good experience and got their comb replaced if it was installed upside down. Question number six comes from Michelle, Troy, Michigan. Looked into the box above the brood box. A couple of frames had capped brood, which was brown in color. If these are newly capped from spring, should the cappings be light beeswax? I did see some eggs and brood also on those frames. Not a lot of bees, but maybe she is just getting into gear. Once again, glad we have the observation hive here because the color of the capping wax, right? Uh, when we're talking about brood, yeah, it gets dark. Look at the colors right here. It's usually a dark cinnamon color. This is um, drone brood. So it's a light cinnamon color. These are also dark. That's brood. This is brood, it's worker brood. A little lighter, sometimes a light cinnamon color. And then of course, when you get up here, I hope it shows a little bit, but the cap wax on honey, that's the light wax. That's the brand new wax. In other words, when it comes to brood and they're chewing out, uh, the pupa is chewing itself out. If it's a worker, it's being chewed out if it's a drone. And uh, they tend to reuse a lot of that beeswax. So it gets darker over time and therefore the cappings are also darker over time. So it is normal and natural to see darker caps on brood, especially on older comb because they're pulling from the adjacent wax and amending that with new wax. So it's not all just recycled, but they are using new wax with it, but it's nice and dark, just like we see here. So when, it, when you talk about uh, the honey, um, when they're capping cells of honey that's finished, that's where you see your lightest wax, and that's the best quality beeswax that you can get out of your hives, is the cap wax from the honey supers, and that's why. You find the most new wax used there. So interesting question. Okay, now I got uh, a full page letter here that I won't show you, but I'm gonna give you the gist of it. And uh, this is from Hunt Lady. And uh, what happened was, I'm just gonna summarize here that uh, it's a cautionary tale for people who might be uh, putting their name on a list for swarm calls and things like that, depending on where you live. Uh, there are hotbeds uh, for Africanized genetics where your bees will be likely or potentially highly defensive. And so because we have a lot of new beekeepers, uh, she is not a new beekeeper, but uh, sometimes people become very complacent uh, when somebody calls and says they have a swarm of bees. And that's why I want to give you a list of questions to ask those people when you get the swarm call. 
And uh, one of the questions I want you to ask is, how long have they been there and when did you first notice them? So in other words, if they know for sure that uh, the tree in my front yard had nothing in it yesterday and today, there's a huge collection of bees on a branch, right? So that means they just got there and the chances are they're pretty darn docile depending on the genetics of those bees up here in the northern parts of the United States. We don't have very much uh, occurrence of uh, the Africanized traits. Now it can happen later in the year when people bring up bees from the south. But uh, so the cautionary tale here is she went to respond to a swarm call and the bees were highly defensive. In other words, they started attacking people. So here's the thing, uh, one of the things that could cause that is harassment of the cluster of bees, depending on where they are. So how long they've been there. If you've got, you know, 12 year olds running around pitching rocks at them and things like that, that can get them a little upset. Um, the other thing is when the beekeeper comes to collect a swarm, knowing how long they've been there, because if they haven't found a place to move to yet, so we're talking about a bivouac location, that's the term. Uh, they're intermediate to the cavity that they hope to find to move into as their permanent structure. When they don't find one, they'll even start building beeswax right on the branch. Once they start doing that, they start to shift their mindset, the hive mind shifts, to now claiming the branch or the tree or the bush or the fence post as a residency. So now they're exposed, now they're starting to have brood and building resources there, this is why it's important to know how long they've been there. Now they defend it. Uh, if it's just a bivouac location and they've not started any infrastructure, they're less defensive regardless of their genetics. It doesn't mean they won't sting you. It just means they're less likely to sting you than they would be if they already had started to build brood. Even here in the state of Pennsylvania, um, some people have observed um, colonies of bees that collected on tree branches and uh, then they actually built out several lobes of beeswax and uh, they built a whole nest there and it wasn't revealed until fall came and the leaves fell off of the trees exposing the nest. And then you realize that these bees never did find a cavity so they built themselves in place and only defensive bees can survive exposed like that. So my cautionary tale for the new beekeepers that have put themselves on a swarm list and they wanna get out there and they wanna collect those bees have your kit ready to go, but I always, always recommend full protection until you realize what you're dealing with. So there's nothing wrong with putting on a bee jacket and a veil and gloves and everything else. You may not need it. Okay, you, you might not be comfortable looking like a bee nerd. I don't mind. I don't mind what I wear and how much safety equipment I have. You can't insult me. I have no ego. That's so I'm rubber, your glue. You can't, you know, all of your insults just stick to yourself. Uh, because I'm going to be safe. I'm not, you're not going to see a picture of me with a big fat lip and a swollen nostril uh, because I decided to walk out and uh, find out if I could collect a swarm without any uh, protection. A veil, have the equipment with you, better to have it and not need it. The last thing you want to be doing is once you start to hive a swarm, uh, if you're not protected, if you're just out there in your t-shirt and shorts, if you're Randy Oliver, and uh, you start fooling with everything and then they start stinging you, uh, you can't just run away and leave bees that are now awake to what's going on around them and stinging actively different people. You just created a difficult situation there and a terrible 
first experience for anyone who's in the vicinity who's never been around or dealt with bees before. So having all of your kit there ready to go. And I also bring sugar syrup with me so I can spritz some and see how things are going. How do I carry it? Oh, it'd be cool if I had an example. This is my sugar syrup kit. It goes on my belt. Look, you just grab it out of there. And this is your sugar water. You can put Honey Bee Healthy in it if you want to, but it's not necessary. Honey Bee Healthy will extend your sugar syrup one to one, a light sugar syrup. It spritzes your bees and you can um, wet them down a little bit and then they shake off the branch easier into your box. Or what else would I recommend that you bring when you're going to collect that swarm? You guessed it, Hive Butler Tote. Hive Butler Tote with a vented cover. You can, here's what I like about it too. Again, I'm getting nothing for telling you about that. It's a tool, a fantastic tool. Instead of carrying a hive body with you and they're on a tree branch, that's why when you're also getting this information, where's the swarm, how's it situated, how high is it, do I need a ladder, blah, blah, blah. Do I have permission to go on the land where the swarm is? Now, if they're on a tree branch and the tree branch is weighted down and we've got a whole cluster on the branch. You know what you can do? You can go up there with your hive butler tote. You can hold it underneath of that. You can take your clippers. Make sure you have permission to clip the branch. And hold the branch carefully. Clip it off. Put the whole thing in your hive butler tote. Close it up. You walk away with everything. From the time you arrive at the scene to the time you neutralize the bees and collect them in your tote is less than five minutes. If you're there longer, it's because you have a bunch of looky-loos around who have a bunch of questions about bees and what they just witnessed. It's very anticlimactic because you walk out there, you spritz them with sugar syrup. If they've been there for a day or two, it's a really hot day like maybe today, and uh, the bees are now actively consuming the sugar syrup. Now, if I were gonna use a bee vac or something like that, I just watched uh, Jeff Horchoff, Mr. Ed, using his, I think it's the Everything BVAC, the yellow uh, bucket that goes on your back that's battery powered, pretty darn convenient looking. I use the Colorado BVAC. And uh, so if I'm gonna suck the bees into any vacuum system, do not spritz them with sugar syrup first for obvious reasons. It's gonna make your hoses sticky and everything else. It's hard on the bees. So if you're gonna use a BVAC, leave them dry. But those totes, clip it, drop it in, you're on your way home. And then you can transfer them into the hive that you want them to go into. Listen to this. You don't have to shake them all off the branch. What I like to do there is come back with, you know, I've done this before, I've got videos of it, but uh, come back with a hive butler tote. I lean it so it's in direct contact. It's important to be in physical contact with the landing board of the hive you want to put them in. Then I take the tree branch or one of the little snippets, the little twigs off of that with some bees on it. I open the lid and I shake them inside because I want bees inside the hive that I want them to go into. Then what they do is they act like, hey, we're scouts, we just found a living space. And then they go to the entrance when they find the entrance finally, and they start fanning and raising their Nasanoff gland. And then guess what? The rest of the bees that are there in your tote just start migrating in and then they think the whole idea was theirs. And then they stay and you're gonna see your queen go in too if you didn't already catch her. So it's a great way to install bees. But I want you to be safe. Always have your full protection. Let's see what else. 
Yeah, ask as many questions as you can. And don't waste a trip. Everybody's got a cell phone. See, so get your cell phone out. A, B, C, always bring your camera. If somebody's telling you, hey, we've got this massive, like my UPS guy that showed up and says, hey, Fred, there's a, there's a huge swarm of bees hanging on a tree branch, and this was in the fall. I should have known better. I asked him a lot of questions. He was positive. So I drove 10 miles just to find a bald-faced hornet nest hanging on a tree branch. So ask them to send you pictures. Send photos of it. Most phone cameras have zoom, and they can get you shots of a specimen, and you'll know for sure that there are bees. Don't waste a trip just to find out it's a bunch of wasps. So let's move on. Question number eight. This comes from Liana from Trent Tenton Falls, New Jersey. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and plans for the Long Langstroth Hive. By the way, there's going to be a link down in the video description to the plans. They're free. Modify away. Do what you want. They work. We just built our first Long Lang and have a question regarding ventilation. Our three colonies all survived winter. We used the vertical hive configuration that you have presented, which includes an insulated inner cover, no upper ventilation. Your plan for the long lang includes upper ventilation holes in the lid, but it seems to contradict the idea of no upper ventilation. We're leaning with not adding the ventilation holes. Can you explain why you recommended upper ventilation in the long lang, but not the vertical hive configuration? Yes. So when you look at the plans, the gabled ends, and by the way, there's a link to the plans, they're free, use them. Um, or don't, up to you, or modify them. No, no harm, no foul. So in the gabled ends of those, there are uh, quarter inch stainless steel mesh on the outside and inside. It's, it's double thick stock, so it's inch and a half thick, uh, two by stock. And uh, on the inside of that, there are stainless steel scrubby pads between those. So airflow, pretty much not at all. Now the question is, um, why is it there? It does not ventilate the hive because on the way the long lang is configured, we have the deep uh, standard Langstroth hive frames that run the full length of it. This is a large, heavy hive. There's bee space above that, which is 3 eighths of an inch. Above the bee space, there are cover boards. The cover boards in this case are one inch thick. In my case, they are red oak and they butt one right up against the other and then they are propolized in. So again, there's no airflow. That defeats any potential for upper venting. Now above that this year, directly on those uh, cover boards, I put double bubble. I also took double bubble and I use it as a gasket around the whole lid. In the ceiling of the hive, interior surface, there's two inch rigid foam board. That's R10. At the gabled ends, okay, um, that's where those vents are. So in other words, if there's a trapped airspace in your hive, if there's, if there's no way for the air to move around, if it's airtight, you need some kind of vent to allow for expansion and contraction of the air in that space. It's trapped air, it's not, it's not a venting system. That's why they're there. So now could you get away with it if you didn't put any kind of vent up there at all? You could, but it's kind of like the attic uh, above your house. 
If you notice, there's insulation on in your attic when you get in there. So the ceiling of your rooms in your house, that's where the best insulation is. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, you want there's building code for how much uh, insulation there has to be. Uh, the sidewalls are much thinner, much less insulation. You can have two by four stud walls in your house, which is a very low R value, by the way. Uh, on the ceiling of your rooms, you might have 30 inches of blown in insulation. Now above that, so now we've got the outer, you've got the roof. And this is where some people, which is weird to me, use this as an example why you need upper ventilation in your hive. No, there's nothing to do with that. There's no comparison. You don't have any upper ventilation in your house. You don't have an opening in the ceiling of your living room uh, that vents into your attic and out. There's nothing like that. Your ceilings are insulated. In fact, a lot of insulation is craft-faced, which means it has a vapor barrier. Also, if you've got ex if expanded uh, fiberglass and things like that, there's no airflow from your house into your attic. There shouldn't be. That's the whole point, is to keep the warm air in and the hot air out in summer, cool air in, but the space above that, there needs to be airflow so that there's no condensation, for example, on the roof sheathing. So where your shingles are nailed onto your roof, underneath that, there's something called roof felt. Underneath that, there's the wood, which is the wood sheathing, it's called, and standard four by eight sheets usually. And the interior surface of that should match outside temperature. Why? We don't want condensation there. So to make sure it matches outside temperature, you have uh, gabled ends, which is the case in the long Langstroth hive, and there's a vent in the gabled ends, or depending on your house design, you might have hip roofs, you might have a ranch style house, uh, there'll be soffits. The soffit is, here's the sidewall of your house, here's the roof coming down, this part that extends beyond the outside wall of your house, right at the top there is the soffit, and you'll see vents there. And the airflow from outside passes through the soffit and up through what might be a ridge vent or some other vent that goes through your roof sheathing. That movement of air up in your attic space, keeping your roof sheathing cool so it doesn't get ice on it, um, has nothing to do with the warm air you've contained in the house or your beehive down below. So I hope that kind of explains that a little bit. So we don't want condensation in that airspace either. I don't want any trapped warm air. Not that there would be a lot of it because there is now insulation on top of the cover boards as well as no airflow there. So it's kind of, it's just an extra thing. So put them in if you want them. Don't put them in if you don't, but that explains my thinking behind it. <clears throat> Question number nine comes from Shauna from South Dakota. Watching your video and your queen in the observation hive, you said queens won't mate with drones from their own colony. I don't know if I should have actually said that. Anyway, it says, I have heard that many times for, from many sources, and my question is, how does that work when people pull frames of brood from colonies and give them to others for equalizing colonies or just helping out a small one? 
I would think the drones that emerge and are fed by the new colony would maybe have the new colony sent. And would the queen from the old colony know they are her offspring? Okay, so whether the queen knows or does not know that they're her offspring does not matter at all. Here's why. So I'm going to explain a little bit about drones, queens, and uh, I probably should stop saying things like you said queens won't mate with drones from their own colony. Okay, largely that's true. We have to kind of watch out for flat, definitive statements like that. Here's why. They're not going to mate in the colony, so there's none of that going on. What they have to do is they fly out, virgin queens, they fly out, and you'll hear this, this term, the DCA, which in the Navy is the damage control assistant who works for the chief engineer. Those are all, you know, firefighting training and stuff like that. But anyway, moving on. The DCA here is a drone congregation area. What that happens is that's where queens go to be mated. Now, the drones in the drone congregation area could technically come from anywhere, right? Because the drones are congregating. They have a right to be there. They come from all over the place. So there are some things that kind of guarantee that our queen that comes from this colony, hopefully, will not be mating with her own drones. We don't want her genetics fed directly back to her. It would be great in a perfect world if your drones from your queens that are fantastic fly away from the hive and they do. They drift. They visit all kinds of other hives. They leapfrog around to different bee colonies. Why? Because they're accepted. I don't know why they get accepted. But that queen's genetics are all over the place. Safety factors for kind of reducing a queen mating with her own drone. One is the drone has to chase down the queen in flight. Uh, the queen releases a sex pheromone. That's right. She's receptive to mating and she puts a pheromone out. The drones first visually key in on a queen in flight. They zip over there. That's what their giant eyes are for. And then once they're in the scent trail of the queen, they kind of get a feel for, number one, she's receptive to mating. So that's what they're all excited about. That's why there's thousands of drones. There's a comet of drones flying after the queen. Now the pheromone that she's generating, and I don't know this for sure, this is speculative on my part, I think that they must smell a familiar uh, genetic material. In other words, a drone might lose its interest if it realizes it's in the scent trail of a receptive queen that comes from the same colony. Okay, so here's what's going on. The other part of that is the queen is not going to mate with one drone, thank goodness, right? She's going to mate with several drones. What's the average? Up to 17 different drones. High competition is going to create some genetic diversity. So a lot of people have spent a lot of time studying drone congregation areas. What is the average distance a drone flies to get to a drone congregation area so it can mate with a queen? Okay, drone flight on average is 3.7 kilometers, right? Most of the drones are within 3.7 kilometers of the colony that they've come out of, right? And in miles, that's 2.29 miles. So this gives you some idea. So that's a limiting factor right there. Why? Because your queen will fly often much farther. 90% of queens 
mate within 7.5 kilometers or 4.6 miles. Now watch out for the terminology. It's within that distance, 90% of them. So if she only went, you know, 400 yards and found a drunk congregation area and made it right there, is she within that 7.5 kilometers? She is. So don't think that that's that she goes that far. She is at 7.5 kilometers, which is 4.6 miles or less from where she comes from. And of course, there are records, and they do this by using micro satellite markers. So there's a little bit of tech for you. But the Queen's uh, maximum flights where the study was conducted, in particular, 9.6 miles max. That doesn't mean they're all flying there. That's the limit of her capability. So there are a lot of things at play here. 50% uh, of the Queens are mating within 2.5 kilometers. So um, the diversity, the 17 average uh, drones that they're mating with. I mean, they break it down even worse than that. I think it says 17.6 um, or something. I don't know how you get a mating from a 0.6 drone, but I'm just being funny. I know I don't need to be, I don't need statistical explanations. But um, so with 17 drones uh, mating successfully with the queen, and the number of drones, this is interesting too. She has a spermatheca. It looks like a little tiny, like a BB, let's say inside her body and uh, there are pressure sensors there so in other words if she mates with five drones and her pressure sensors around her spermatheca let her know that it's full she's done because a pint can't hold a quart so to speak and once she's mated then she's done other queens have mated and they know this by tracking the dna of the sperm that the queen collects in her spermatheca when she comes back so dissection is required for that and they find out that uh, some queens have made it with 30 or more drones. So once again, I guess she just wasn't full yet. So the good news is genetic diversity. So how many drones from a single colony uh, end up at the same drone congregation area? Do they all from this colony go to that drone congregation area? And they don't, they tend to spread out, but they're in groups, by the way. They tend to fly out in groups from the same colony. Now here's the thing, I was thinking they probably leapfrog a little bit too. So if a drone can make it, you know, a mile and a half down the road or whatever, and uh, but then on their way back, they discover another colony, they land on that landing board, they get welcomed there. Did that not just extend that drone's genetic range? So there's a lot going on there. Here's the thing, let's say the queen does mate with one of her own drones. And when she comes back, there's something that nurse bees do in the hive. Everything, remember, is heavily pheromone-based. They recognize one another through their pheromones. Sister workers recognize one another and cluster together. What do I mean by sister workers? Those, all the workers in a colony come from one queen, right? But they don't all come from one drone. So, those that have come from the same drone and, of course, the same queen are sisters. The rest of them are half-sisters. And uh, so, they recognize one another and cluster together, and in some cases, even forge together. And when they're not working, they're hanging together, genetically similar, uh, inside the hive. How do they know who they are? I don't know. How do they know they're sisters, and how do they know that those over there are half-sisters? I don't know. But it's cool.
it's knowledge for the sake of knowledge. But the part that I'm talking about now is this should not be a point of concern, and that's because they do something called policing. So when the nurse bees are cruising around looking at uh, eggs that have been placed by the queen, and when that egg hatches on the third day, uh, that larva puts out a pheromone. When it puts out the pheromone, they understand then instantly the genetics of that egg, of that new larva. If those genetics are too close to the queen, guess what they do? They eat it. They remove it. They don't let it develop. So that's called policing. They make sure that they are genetically diverse just like that. So um, that's about it on that. It's not something to worry about. And if you're doing splits and things like that, your drones are flying out all over the place. Um, again, if your drones are, the drones use up their energy really fast. So if they're flying out, they're flying closer, the most convenient, the local bar, they're not going into the city for the big bar scene. They're hanging out, you know, whatever is closest to them. And then the queens, they had longer distances. That's how I choose to see it in my mind. So question number 10 comes from Jeremy Cumberland, British Columbia, Canada. I will be a new beekeeper at the end of May. I have my first nuke on order and I have been learning lots about the Varroa destructor mites. They seem to be the biggest hurdle with beekeeping. Do you know if anyone has ever tried to teach the bees to groom the mites off of each other? I am thinking if I find any mites on bees, I can put a dab of honey on the mites. I would like to believe the bee would then be groomed by a nurse bee and in this process, the mite would be removed. What are your thoughts on this? Okay. Well, there are already uh, bees that groom mites off of one another, and I don't recommend trying to find a mite on the bee. You will go nuts trying to locate a mite on a bee just so you can dab it with honey to get the bees to groom it. So that's not going to be easy to do. You have to have opened the hive. You have to be doing careful inspections. You have to become very annoying to your bees in order to be able to see on the underside because that's where the mite is going to be most of the time on the underside of the abdomen of the workers, the nurse bees. And as we know too, feel free to harass all the drones you want. So if they're brand new drones and they've got mites on them, uh, I don't think it's very effective to try to put honey or some attractant on a bee that's got a mite on it. If you see that's got the mite, just get the mite off. Because if, if you can dab honey on them, that moving around bee, just imagine trying to do that in here. Um, but there are hygienic bees, uh, VSH, Varroa, or they uh, groom one another. This colony is like that. When you pull out this bottom board of this colony, it has no mites right now, which makes me very happy. Not one. Um, but they're super hygienic. They groom one another constantly. The other thing is you'll see a lot of open cells in between some of this brood here. And that's because when they find that uh, a developing pupa has ferrodestructor mites in it, they uncap it, they pull the pupa out, they get rid of it. Uh, and they bite the drone, or they bite the varroa mites. So these are hygienic bees. Now some people don't like that because that's part of force reduction. And what they would really like to do is just treat the mites, 
and have the bees stay in maximum production and not uh, practice this hygienic behavior of removing infected bees and uh, varroa striker mite pupa and things like that. So um, there's a lot going on already. So uh, this grooming is a trait. So it's a trait that can be genetically transferred on. So um, it's interesting to think about that. There is a mechanism out there called the BGM. And uh, it's something that the inventor has set up so bees will have to go through these brushes and uh, that helps them dislodge mites. So the thinking there is then that you would have bees that seek out the bee gem, the brushes, and uh, force their bodies back and forth through it until they groom off any mites. So that would indicate, number one, the honeybee has to be aware that the mite is on her abdomen. And then number two, she has to physically go and uh, rub herself on something to remove the mite. In my opinion, far better to have the high grooming capability of these uh, bees that genetically don't tolerate the presence of varroa destructor mites. But uh, it's an interesting idea and uh, it already exists. Question number 11 comes from Krela from Waverly, Tennessee. Sad day here, I fear. I think I killed my queen in the mite wash. My installed package was on day seven. Did a mite wash in prep of OA vapor treatment on day eight before the larvae were capped. Looked at the bees after and found what I believe is the queen. Should I requeen or let them make a queen? So here's the deal. That was a time critical thing. So I already answered uh, this and I'm telling it to you because we're talking about a package. <clears throat> so here's the thing I said, get a mated queen right away. You don't have time. If you've killed the queen, this is on the eighth day. Even if they've laid eggs, we already talked about it earlier. You're 30 days out, assuming everything goes perfect. For that 30 days, you are losing numbers of worker bees. It's a package and uh, every single day you're losing bees. So you want to get another mated queen in there as soon as possible. Here's the other part of that. Uh, if you're going to do a mite count on a package of bees, then um, I highly recommend you don't use the alcohol wash or the Dawn Ultra dish detergent method. I highly recommend that you use the dry powdered sugar shake. The reason for that is, one, is the issue that was just described here, killing your queen. The sugar shake will not kill the queen. Might rough her up, she might not be happy. Of course, the best thing for you to do is to make sure and not count mites on your queen. Um, and I realize that that's done with, but if you do the sugar shake, they're all alive. If you get one or two mites in that sugar shake, and that was a package, I would do an OAV treatment. I would not wait. Of course, seventh or eighth day is exactly what I recommend because you want to wait till they're settled. If you harass them right off the bat, including mite counts, then uh, you could cause them to abscond. We don't want that. We want them to settle in. We want them to start laying eggs. We want brood to be present. And then you can do the OAV treatment on that seventh or eighth day 
Why the seventh or eighth day? Because we don't want any of those brood to be capped over. Once they're capped, for those that are listening, uh, the varrodestructor mites that are on the pupae that are uh, capped, now it's out of reach of the uh, oxalic acid vaporization treatment, so it renders it ineffective for them. But uh, yeah, if you're gonna count mites on a package of bees, do the powdered sugar shake. I highly recommend that you know for sure whether your package of bees has mites in it or not, and then do the oxalic acid vaporization treatment before any of those bees are capped. Not when you first receive the package, because then you're stressing the bees, they've already been stressed, they've already been in transit, they showed up, you hived them, you've got your queen in a cage, you're trying to make sure that they're accepting of her, and then within three days, you're gonna release that queen, and she's gonna start laying, and from the day that you release the queen, that's when your eight day counter starts. So if she's in your new install and she's still there and they're chewing through the candy plug, obviously she's not laying eggs yet. So it extends your time down the road when you can delay doing the oxalic acid vaporization treatment. But you have a prime opportunity to knock any mites they brought with them flat. Now the package thing, has been all over the chart. Some people have done uh, mite counts on packages and found no mites. Great, good news, yay. Uh, others have gotten packages uh, in the mail that had mites, small high beetles, and uh, other free passengers. So not yay, the opposite. And uh, if you don't know about that, you don't treat them, you just gave them a huge foothold in your brand new hive as they go into the pupa stage. They start reproduction right away. How many mites does it take to start reproduction of an entire colony of mites in your brand new colony of bees? One. One foundress mite starts the whole problem off. So, know what you have. Question number 12, David from Amarillo, Texas. Hi Fred, never thought to be asking this, but here in far northwest Texas, we've had an extremely dry winter and spring. Only 1.6 inches of total precip so far in 2023. Things are starting to bloom, but it's obvious the environment isn't ramping up for a good nectar flow like normal. I'm wondering if I should put my bees on light syrup. They've been chopping through the hive life fondant since December. I have pollen patties, but fear that giving pollen to the bees would encourage brood production when mother nature is saying this could be a lean year for bees. They have plenty of fresh water. I always give syrup during summer or fall dearth but never before in spring, your thoughts. Okay, um, remember that your bees are livestock and that you're taking care of them. We don't want our bees to die. Um, I can say this, the colony that's sitting next to me here has never been fed. Um, and uh, I don't give them any protein sources. Uh, now on the flip side of that is I have offered dry pollen sub because I wanted to find out which dry pollen sub was the most appealing to the bees. We did uh, Ultra B dry pollen sub, we did AP23, and we did Mega B. So what I'm about to say is I, um, I don't put patties inside the hives and I don't put pollen inside the hives. I just don't. Uh, the Hive Alive Fondant has proven to be fantastic and uh, has prevented starvation for some hives. And that's where we get to this point and that is starvation is something you want to prevent your bees from suffering through 
uh, regardless of the time of year that it is. And so if you know that you've got a nectar dearth and uh, that's going to have a heavy impact on your bees because that's their fundamental carbohydrate just to keep them going. So I do recommend if you're in a dearth period and uh, regardless of when that occurs, if your bees are losing weight, if your colonies are in decline for lack of resources from the environment, then you should keep them alive. And uh, I highly recommend one-to-one -one sugar syrup this time of year. And uh, it's not an issue that you would be providing sugar syrup to your honey supers. And the reason is because if you've got this kind of dearth going on, you don't have your honey supers on anyway. You are in survival mode. So there are two things that I would do. One is uh, look at the pollen count by getting one of those apps that shows the pollen that's available in your area. Um, and if you know the pollen is already high in your area, because it can, even when you know things are dry, when there's a, a dearth and nectar is not abundant, there can still be pollen out there. So you can find out what the pollen counts are. You can contact a local university. You can contact your local meteorologist at your local weather station or your television station and find out what kind of pollen we're dealing with. They have access to information that we don't. And so if the pollen's out there, your number one thing that you want to keep your bees alive with is sugar syrup with nothing in it. I never put pollen uh, substitutes, or I know that you can. Uh, Better Bee has a whole formula for those that are interested. You can go to betterbee.com. You can look at their Mega Bee uh, pollen substitute. And more important than the Mega Bee itself are the guidelines that they provide regarding how you can feed it to your bees. So as I mentioned earlier in today's Q&A, if you have uh, a low pollen period, uh, then you can put the pollen subs out available for the bees to forage. I much prefer that the bees forage for it if they need it. The sugar syrup can be provided in hive. And uh, I think that's a good way to go. But uh, it goes without saying that uh, you should not have any um, honey supers on for human consumption or honey that you're going to sell when you provide any sugar syrup from cane sugar. So... Yes, do not let your livestock die. Provide the carbohydrates and then free choice away from your colony, well away from your apiary, the dry pollen sub. If you have no pollen, but first find out because you may not know. They, in the absence of nectar, okay, will not be bringing in a bunch of pollen because the demand for the pollen falls off. They need those two things. They need the carbohydrate, which is the sugar syrup, and then they bring in pollen. Both of those things are triggers for developing brood. <clears throat> Question number 13 comes from Randy, Parkersburg, Iowa. It's uh, Sunday the 16th and snowing all day again and the bees had a good week in the 80s and uh, watched them bring in lots of pollen and nectar. I did notice that when the bees left their hive, they would make a couple of figure eights higher and higher above the hive, then take off on a bearing that would split the figure eight that they flew. My question is, did this orientation flight mimic the waggle dance from inside the hive, or is this just typically how they orient themselves? Seems like I find something new every time I take the time to really watch them. And that's true. We can learn a lot from observing our bees, but here's the thing. 
Um, that is an interesting comparison because the waggle dance, for those of you who don't know, when bees are bringing in a resource to the hive, whether it's nectar or pollen, uh, very rarely do they do it with propolis on them, but they can, but it's usually nectar or pollen or both. And when they do the waggle dance, it's true, they waggle, they cut to the right, they waggle the other direction, they cut to the left. So they do kind of do a figure eight, but the angles that they're doing are relevant to the position of the sun. So the figure eights that we see out in front of the hive, when they, they, they leave and they do this little look around, if you notice too, when they're doing that figure eight, they're looking in all directions. That little bee that's about to leave, the forager, is memorizing landscape features. Now we know that they navigate from the polarized sun, right? So even partial cloud cover, they see the ultraviolet polarization of the sun's rays and they can orient to that. But it's been discovered, of course, that they also navigate heavily based on physical features in the landscape. Uh, so no, it doesn't imitate the waggle dance because the function of those two things is completely different. And the bee that's heading out to forage for something uh, already knows the direction that's going to follow relevant to the sun. But each time they leave, they do, especially if it's a younger bee, a newer bee, uh, they do that orientation flight. And in some cases, they'll do that figure eight as they go up. And instead of continuing off, they'll do the figure eight and then they'll come right back down and land again. This is why sometimes when we've had bad weather, which by the way, is headed our way again, immediately following that, the warm afternoon, it looks like a swarm, but it's just a whole bunch of bees that have just gotten out doing their uh, orientation flights. And we know that they're the younger foragers that are not completely familiar with their environment because the older foragers that have already been to a nectar or pollen source or both, uh, when they come out, they jet right away. They don't even do that. So you can see the difference. So you know that you're dealing with a young bee that has not been out of the hive very often. And so that orientation that they do as they depart is always gonna be from a younger bee but not uh, the same information that's found in a waggle dance is not displayed in that orientation uh, flight that they do with a very loose figure eight as they climb. But that's a cool observation. It's a fun question. Last question of the day. I'm sorry that this was such a long one. So if you're in traffic or you're traveling, you get a bonus. This all went, I'm sure, super long. Uh, this is question number 14. It comes from Bruce from Holderness, New Hampshire. I have three very small overwintered colonies that I am worried about. I have left over Hive Alive fondant. Can I mix it with pollen substitute to make patties to feed my bees if the temperatures drop and the weather is such that the bees can't get out? Okay, so I'm going to go back to my original thing. I personally, this is just my personal preference. One of the reasons, by the way, there's so many different ways to do things in beekeeping is guess what? There are so many different ways in beekeeping that work. So the question is just what you personally want to do. So one of the reasons I don't put pollen patties in and I don't put any patties in other than fondant and the fondant goes on top of my insulated inner cover. Um, pollen patties should be placed for those of you who are using them directly over your brood. So brood, 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 your pollen patty would be here, right on top of this brood, right? That's worker brood. Uh, how do you get to that? You had to pull your outer cover off, your inner cover off, you had to pull the top box, and then you had to put it underneath your honey super. 
on top of the brood. So we invaded the colony. Each time you do that, regardless of how much you think your bees love you, it's an invasion, it stresses your bees. So then we put the pollen patty in there and if they don't like it, they have to dismantle it and remove it. They have to haul it out the front, especially this time of year. So I don't put anything in there. Uh, the hive alive fondant that I put on top um, is just an emergency resource and not one of my hives used 100% of it. They went through 50 or 60% of it, the most, those who consumed the most of it, and uh, they never finished a packet. So that's emergency. Now we're not talking about an emergency anymore. We have pollen and stuff out there. If you're gonna put anything to help your bees along, uh, make it something that you can put on your hive that's non-invasive to the hive. We don't want to be disturbing brood and infrastructure this time of year, unless it's the first time you've inspected the colony and there's a reason for inspecting it. Do you have to do a full colony inspection when you're opening your hive to see where they're at this time of year? No. You're looking at the landing board, if they've got a lot of pollen coming in, you're good to go. Now, if you suspect that you need to do a mite count or something like that, now you have to bother them. You're gonna get down in there. So here's my advice. If you're getting your hive to do an inspection, have a reason for going down in there. Um, when you're gonna go and count the mites, be prepared to do a treatment and everything else. If you're the person that's going to use Formic Pro and things like that, when you do the inspection, you do the mite count, you get a high mite count, do the, do the Formic Pro treatment right then, put it on, then close everything all back up. Do as many things as you can possibly think of that you might need to do when you do that inspection. Be prepared for any contingency. Low mite count, don't need it, button them right back up. But personally, I would not put pollen patties on this time of year, just me personally. And I've already described before that if you definitely know for sure, I don't have a pollen dearth. Uh, when we put up that graphic at the beginning of today's video, it is as high a pollen count as you can possibly get. And I tend to think that that's running a stream across the entire United States almost. So there is pollen everywhere right now. Pollen patty, waste of money, very expensive. Just my opinion. You know, I know that, and now if I were buying pollen patties, which ones would I get? I would get the Hive Alive pollen patties because they're made with real pollen and uh, they're being made by a very good company and the pollen's coming from California. Which plants are the pollen coming from in California? Don't know, California pollen. But it's expensive stuff and I personally don't use it. So it's up to you. Sugar syrup, for sure. Put that on if you're in a dearth. That's it, we're in the fluff section. So, plan of the week. Make sure your swarm kit is together, ready to go, stage. Don't be running around like a chicken with your head cut off. When you get that call for swarms, um, you wanna be the one that writes in right away and says, I'm on it, I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna go get it. If it's raining or anything else, go get it. Be the one. Uh, if, you don't, uh, if you don't have some gear that you need, that means you have to have this is what I would stage personally. A bee vac if you've got one. The bee vacuum that I recommend is the Colorado bee vac. I have to say that the one that Jeff Horshoff is using, the everything bee vac that you put on your back like a backpack, looking pretty sweet. Don't have it, haven't tested it, don't know anything about it other than if Jeff uses it, must be good. So um, uh, you need to have that. You need to have your sugar syrup ready to go. 
Hive Butler totes, I can't say enough good things about that because when you drop things in a Hive Butler tote, when you collect a swarm, whatever it is, you put the lid on, you put it in the back of your car, it's secure, it's good to go. You're done. None of this screwing your Hive components together and the lid and strapping things and all of that. It is incredibly convenient. Enough said about that. Have the stuff in your car ready to go, by the way. Always have a bee suit, a jacket with a veil in your car with gloves. So that means, yeah, you might have to have two bee suits. So let's see, have your water stations out, by the way, if you haven't yet. Put your drinking stations out, make them consistent through the year. If you can set up a garden hose somewhere with just barely spritzes, if you've got some big boulders in your yard and your garden hose can run to that and you lay a garden hose over the top of it and it just barely spritzes and keeps the surface wet, that is a great area for your bees to go to. But uh, what they find first, they consistently go to. For me right now, it's my pond, of course. Uh, stage equipment for splits. So if you don't own a nucleus hive, if you don't own a nucleus box, I highly recommend every backyard beekeeper have one or two of those. They are so convenient. I am sorry I did not use them for all the time that I've been keeping bees. They are just easy to tote around, easy to use, take them with you when you're doing your inspection. This is another thing, pre-staging, being ready to deal with whatever you find inside your hive. If you have your nucleus box next to you and it's full of frames, it needs to be full of frames, right? Because when you do your inspection, if you find that there's queen cells underway and then you see the queen, get the queen right then with a frame of brood and put her in that nucleus box right now. If you have everything with you there while you do the inspection, you're done. It's a one and done thing and let them have their queen cells. Let them go ahead and, uh, you know, hatch out. You saved yourself a swarm, right? So you just took the queen away with some brood, you relieve congestion and you start a new colony in that nuke. There's always going to be someone in your bee club that needs bees. You could be their hero. Have a nuke box. What else? Uh, wear your bee belt. Practice wearing your bee belt. Now maybe you're not a bee nerd, okay? But I'm gonna be a bee nerd this year. Now in the past, I just might carry one or two things, but look, that's my bee belt. See that? Because I got them from Paul Kelly. Paul Kelly from University of Guelph was down at the West Virginia Beekeepers Conference. I don't want to brag. He signed my belt. See that right there? It's Paul Kelly. Um, but what I say is, don't be afraid to be a nerd. Wear this belt around. And then it's called kinesthesis. You see, you get a new piece of gear and you want to be able to reach for different pieces of equipment without looking down for it. Get a feel for where it's located. Where, annoy everybody. Wear your bee belt to the dinner table. And, uh, you know, just run through scenarios and you're, ah, look, I found a queen. Oh, good. I might need to reach down to my bee belt without looking at it. Oh, look, there's a queen cage because of my Paul Kelly bee belt. And I put the queen in here and ah, I have her right there. Without looking, you reach down and you put that queen cage right in there, right? Ah, I need to mark the queen. Oh, look, in my bee belt from University of Guelph. I have that. Oh, I need to mark my hive so the thieves don't get it. Sharpie. So you practice. Oh, I have to spritz a swarm of bees. 
you got your sugar syrup. That's not part of the Paul Kelly B-Belt, but practice like quick draw, you know, like these the gunfighters in the old westerns. They didn't look down to where the gun was. They had a feel for it. They knew exactly where it was going to be. You know, they grab their knife out. They do whatever they need to do. You need to be that as a beekeeper and make your, make your significant other run drills on you. They walk into the room, they kill the lights, total darkness. Get your queen cage out. See how quick you do it and then flick the lights back on and see how quick you got your stuff together. Get your swarm kit in the car, lights out. They rouse you out at 2.30 in the morning, see how quick you can load up and be ready to go. I understand, those aren't real scenarios, but it sure is fun. Have your kit ready to go. You wanna talk about bees right now? Google Facebook groups, the way to be. Join that group, friendly people. Nobody will criticize you. You can ask the most basic questions. We have uh, really good people there to make sure that everybody's nice and friendly. Join it. Be informed, partnership, loss and management survey is still going on. If you haven't filled out the survey, please do. Shout out to Adam Holmes. Adam Holmes every single Friday breaks down all the questions with the timestamps so you can look them up. He does that every single Friday. He also does it for my podcast. He doesn't know that he does that, but see, I copy it and I paste it on the podcast. And that way people that are listening to the podcast through Podbean, iHeartRadio, Apple iPod, and all the other iPod stuff, I'm on seven different iPod channels now. So if you've got an iPod app, chances are the way to be podcast is on it. So I want to thank Adam Holmes for that. That's it for today. So I want to thank you for being here and for watching. And there's a lot going on in the bee yard. The weather's warm. Don't be caught off guard. Wear your bee belt and all your kit everywhere you go all the time. And be prepared to deal with any bee situation. Have a great weekend. Mm -hmm.